costs anywhere from half a million and up to jail an indigenous woman in maximum security. And if we took even a fraction of the money we spend on policing, prosecuting, and jailing indigenous people, every indigenous person in this country could be educated to post-secondary level, could have housing, could have clean water, and we would see, in fact, the quality of life better for everybody. That's Senator Kim Payne. She's our guest today on the Akamaman Podcast. Dance, Tawao, and welcome to the Akamemek Podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemek is a Plains Cree word meaning, you all persevere. Or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. So on this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And today, our guest is Canadian Senator Kim Pate an internationally recognized expert in the area of legal and prison reform. Before joining the Senate in 2016, Kim Pate spent over 20 years as Executive Director of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies. In that role, she was a leading advocate for women and marginalized people in Canadian prisons with a special focus on the over-representation of First Nations women. It's a cause she remains committed to in the Senate. Senator Kim Pate, very big welcome to our Akamemek podcast. Well, thank you. It's a huge honor and uh, humbling to be here, and to I'm so happy to join you from the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek. Good stuff. So, let's talk about mandatory sentencing. Bad thing. Yeah, you've just introduced a bill in September aimed at loosening the rules around mandatory sentencing. So, let's talk about that bill, and why do you see it? it's so important, and... Do you think it's going to eventually become law? Well, third time lucky. This is the third time I've introduced this piece of legislation. It wasn't an original idea. Erwin Kotler, who is a former justice minister and um, and then as an MP introduced this legislation, he also introduced a bunch of mandatory minimum penalties, but we won't hold that against him because he's tried to fix it up later, I guess. Uh, but it, the bill basically allows judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties. So lots of people have been critical of it, and I accept the criticism fully that it doesn't go far enough because what we really need to do is repeal those mandatory minimum penalties. I mean, when I started doing this work more than, it's almost 40 years ago now when I started working with kids and then with men and then with, as you mentioned, with women, um, there were like a handful, less than 10 mandatory minimum penalties. Now we have, uh, depending on how you count them, 70, 80, 90 and so we, we really should be get rid, getting rid of them. Uh, but so the other thing in the bill is a recommendation or one of the things that is not in the bill but that I'm recommending is that we also have a law reform or sentencing reform commission to look at and go through methodically all of those mandatory minimum penalties and figure out which ones we can remove totally. Um, but in the interim, we should allow judges who hear all of the evidence to decide when they uh, when they don't need to impose a mandatory minimum penalty and so that they can actually make um, the sentence fit with the circumstances of the individuals involved. So what are the likelihood of this bill passing? Because it's a great idea and First Nations totally support it. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's um, it's 
call to uh, action number 32 of the Truth and Reconciliation DRC, Commission, yeah. and it's also one of the recommendations or the calls for justice from the missing and murdered Indigenous women. And so, I yeah, there's widespread support for it. In fact, um, the previous Justice Minister, it was in her mandate letter to implement this. And so uh, this the current Justice Minister is on record as saying he supports it. In fact, he signed the petition of the Black Caucus, uh, the Parliamentary Black Caucus members who uh, are calling also for the end of it. So I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful. Uh, it it would be an easy way for them to start the process. I don't think it's the end of the process, though, because, you know, as I mentioned, what I accept the criticism that we really should be repealing a bunch of these laws, not just allowing judges to have an escape valve, if you will. Well, we'll keep working together and, and pushing to make sure that that bill comes to fruition. And we hear those two very important words, royal assent. Mm-hmm. This is something that's been going on for many, many years. And, and you quite rightly point out it's one of the recommendations in the Truth TRC Calls to Action. And it's also in the Missing Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Call to Justice as well. So we're going to keep working. We'll, we'll work together on that. So Excellent. thanks for your leadership on that. Thank you. Now, you've got a lot of experience in the prison system in Canada. And, uh, you know, we've always talked about the statistics, you know, as First Nations, we have 634 First Nations reserves across Canada, over 60 different nations or tribes of people. Our population is just a little under a million. Then as well, you have the, uh, the Inuit peoples and the Métis peoples as well, uh, combined maybe 1.4 or 5 million approximately. Uh, but the numbers are staggering, our overrepresentation in the prison system. The women... 44%, I believe yep, is the latest figure. That's right. And then for men, it's what, 30? That's right. And so with our number of being a million, that's less, you know. It's uh, atrocious. Less, it's yeah. atrocious. So yeah. why, what did you learn, What like working the prison system, why are those numbers so high for our people, and especially First Nations women? And mm-hmm. the big question, how do we fix it? How can we change things? Well, the why of it is discrimination. I don't need to tell any First Nations people in this country what the why of it, which is the if you layer on the intersections of discrimination, so class, obviously race, and then if you add gender and you add disability, because the number of people with mental health issues, disabling mental health issues, as well as um, things like brain damage, uh, when you recognize the past trauma that so many people who are in prison have experienced, 91% of Indigenous women in prison have histories of abuse. Many of them Mm -hmm. also have brain damage that goes along with it. Many of them have never had support to deal with that past trauma, except maybe to be offered drugs, sometimes legal, sometimes illegal, and to anesthetize themselves to those realities. Then you add what you know in terms of inadequate health care, so many communities without drinkable water, without adequate food, housing, all of those issues, then have the multiplier effect of that kind of discrimination. And so the only system that cannot refuse people can't say our beds are full, you don't fit our mandate, we're not taking any more people right now, is the prison system. And so Mm. it doesn't take much for people to be criminalized. In fact, the, some of some of us are old enough to remember when you used to have self-report studies. You know, they come around and interview us in high school or and figure out, you know, how many of us were doing things we weren't supposed to. And the reality is the majority of us have done something for which we could have been criminalized. But depending on who we did it to, who knew about it, whether it got reported, whether we had other supports, most of us obviously didn't get criminalized because of that. And yet, if you're already, if you've already come to the attention of the state, either because you were taken into care 
or you have you're on the street or you have mental health challenges there's a greater likelihood that you'll end up in the system and in fact it's even worse to show you just how bad it is in Saskatchewan your home Mm-hmm. territory, 98% of the girls in custody are Indigenous. And I just was working on a sentencing of a young Cree woman from, uh, and, you know, we had to fight for almost three years. And it was a, a friend, in fact, my former roommate from law school who came out of retirement as a favor to um, one of your colleagues, uh, another chief to assist with this case. And uh, she she did a tremendous job. The, everybody involved did a tremendous job. But even so, the judge still wanted to give this young woman in jail. There was no excuse. Everything in the law says there was no reason for it. She had paid back. She had. She was. She still wants to do a whole bunch of uh, public service and go and do training with kids in communities and kids facing the situation she was. You know, she was on her own at 16 and struggling and a single mom, but has got back into school. Has tried to pay back in every way she can, and really there was no excuse for why the judge was even looking at jail or the crown for that matter. Now to his their credit, the crown came on board and recommended not to send her to jail. But it took the judge several months to try and get wrap her head around it and eventually she came to the right decision. But it shouldn't take that. I mean, mm-hmm. it shouldn't take the kind of effort that was almost three years in the making to get that kind of more, in fact, I would say it's not even a just sentence. I, I thought everything should have been dropped. Once she, once she had taken responsibility, resolved the matter, offered to go to communities and educate young people who are in similar situations to her, what more do you want? What other sentencing principle is there except punishment? And so that's essentially why she was, uh, you know, given the sentence she was, a suspended sentence. It's only punishment. There's no other reason. There's no need to correct her behavior. It's already been done. There's no reason to have to rehabilitate her. She's already done that. Um, there's, she's got all the support. She's in it, school. She's likely to have a job. And, you know, I mean, it, it to me, it epitomizes what's wrong with the system. And so that's how we end up with the fastest growing prison population being not just Indigenous people, but particularly Indigenous women, and even more so those who have experienced the greatest disadvantage and the intersections of that disadvantage um, almost guarantee that she will either end up on the street, missing or murdered, or in prison. And that is not... The trajectory and is not um, what we should be in any way uh, reinforcing for any women in this country, least of all Indigenous women. And so, you know, it's part of why I think the missing and murdered Indigenous women, the TRC did too, and so did the Royal Commission, but in particular, the missing and murdered Indigenous women inquiry has such a wide range of everything from health, social service, mental health supports, as well as reform around the criminal legal system. I call it a criminal legal system, as do you, I know, because there's not much just about it right now. And, and so we end up using the system that can't refuse people because we have failed, utterly failed in terms of housing strategies, in terms of income supports, in terms of, you know, all of the other social, economic and health services that refuse or fail abjectly people. And, you know, I don't need to tell you or any of your Mm -hmm. listeners about the failure of the healthcare system, the social services system, any of those child welfare system, any of those systems when it comes to Indigenous people. And thank you for that explanation. You know, everything from discrimination, racism, based on race, on gender, disabilities, intergenerational trauma, over-criminalization, uh, poverty, overcrowded housing, a lack of education, lack of supports, it's, it's, it's all there. 
Mm-hmm. And and it's reflected in the numbers. 44% yep. are First Nations women going into the jail system. Yeah. And 30% men. So, and then it was talked about, I, I've heard this in my travels across Canada, that, you know, so many people make their careers on the, on the backs of our social ills as First Nations people. You know, like there's so many people. Think of all the, from the police to the corrections workers to the courts to the the whole system is is set up. We've become institutionalized from the residential school institution to the criminal institutions. I've heard that explained, and so now we've got to change that around because it costs over a hundred thousand dollars a year to keep a First Nations person in jail. Oh, even more if you're talking about women. I mean, they hide a lot of the costs in terms of capital costs. But mm-hmm. if you look at um, the parliamentary budget officer costing they did in 2010, uh, of the it, that was the piece of legislation that was brought in that brought in longer, more punitive sentences. And mm-hmm. one of the things that a lot of people didn't realize, if you look in the, the notes to that bill of uh, the costing of what was Bill C-10 at the time, um, Kevin Page, who was the parliamentary budget officer then, costed out what it would cost for one woman who again is a a Cree woman from Manitoba this time to who had been labeled a dangerous offender not based on anything she did in the community she actually entered prison on a three-year sentence but she accumulated charges inside the prison that resulted in at one point her being labeled a dangerous offender and you may know that it's mostly indigenous people particularly men that uh, who who are labeled dangerous offenders and Saskatchewan is the one of the worst offenders I would say I use that word intentionally uh, in terms of labeling people and they costed out and they said for the amount of money they were putting into jailing her because she was in the most secure setting in large part because she was so smart and challenged everything they did and the response to that was punishment always and she spent most Mm. of her time in solitary confinement uh, during and they said basically they could have sent her to Harvard for a pittance of what they were spending to jail her and that it costs anywhere from half a million wow. and up to jail an indigenous woman in maximum security and more than half of the women uh, indigenous women are in maximum security and in fact APTN is doing a series right now on some women who were we would argue are wrongfully convicted uh, and in that context, one of the things they're looking at is the fact that uh, not only are people jailed for longer periods, but the uh, of those women who receive life sentences, 45% are Indigenous. Like, that's mm. huge. And so, and actually the numbers are probably going up. Those are old numbers. Those are from three or four years ago. And so we see disproportionately the criminalization the hyper-responsibilization, and what I mean by that, that was a term that the late Trish Montour uh, used a lot, which was that we tell women, and think of the missing and murdered Indigenous women and what happens when families call about their missing women, and, you know, what was she wearing, what's she doing, oh, she's probably off partying. The hyper-responsibilizing of women who have been victimized, the message they get that it's their job to protect themselves and their children, and the minute they act to defend themselves, like these two women who are being focused on in the APTN investigation, series right now the minute they act to defend themselves the full weight of the law comes down on them and if they have used force if they use lethal force or someone who's with them uses lethal force and here I think of Yvonne Johnson and so many other women then the full force of the law comes on them even when they have co-accused who may have actually done the killing 
they're more likely to get longer sentences. And and yeah. so we see this massive layering on of the injustices as well. And, you know, none of virtually none of the innocence projects or wrongful conviction projects focused on women and even mm. less and even fewer on indigenous women. And yet in my humble opinion, that is where the greatest injustices uh, lie. No, I agree. And so, I sorry, I, I started on a rant about, but the, the cost. So the fiscal cost, the human cost, the social cost is huge. And if we took even a fraction of the money we spend on policing, prosecuting, and jailing Indigenous people, every Indigenous person in this country could be educated to post-secondary level, could have housing, could have clean water, could have good, sustainable food, and they would be basically the the standard of living of all indig of all people would be raised in the country and we would see in fact um, the quality of life better for everybody not just indigenous people but in particular for indigenous people well that was my point i want to ensure that i stress this point so our listeners get it the high cost of maintaining the status quo in the existing system of a punitive justice system and that's my segue to my next question about this uh, restorative justice versus punitive justice. And, and again, you and I don't use the word justice system. It's a legal system and it's courts of law mm-hmm. and predominantly common law and civil law. Uh, there's no recognition or respect for First Nations law, natural law, creator's law. And, but this whole term, restorative justice, what does it mean to you in your experience? I mean, I, I always say I don't like the term restorative justice because it's restored to what? And for most people, as we've already, we've just talked about, they don't start in an equal point. They don't have substantive equity or equality to start with. They're not starting in the same place as someone who is, you know, in, in university. And I often use an example of another woman who just got released from prison last week after she was the longest serving Indigenous woman in prison. And she and I are the same age. And at the age that I was going off to university, she was going to the federal penitentiary. And the opportunities that we had are so vastly different, but so unfair because, uh, you know, I came from a working class family and had she had even, you know, half of the opportunities that then I got access to by virtue of, you know, uh, people supporting me, all of the things that, you know, that I had access to that she didn't. She was in residential school. She was then in an abusive relationship. Then she was in prison and it just snowballed from there. And she's another one whose case we're trying to get the conviction overturned. But when we we look at the lack of opportunities and then we say restorative justice, um, my concern is, and one of the first programs that I worked on with young people was called a restorative justice program. It was to keep kids out of the system. And hardly any Indigenous kids got referred to that program. And I was in Calgary. Hello. There was, you know, the when I'd go out to the youth jail, it was full of Indigenous kids. So uh, so the reality is that one of the things that happens often when we, when we develop alternatives that are supposed to be getting people out of the system, uh, the discrimination still kicks in and that's why as we're talking I mentioned the stat of 98% of girls in uh, of young women and girls in custody in Saskatchewan are Indigenous 
Well, a few years back, 15 years ago, actually, the uh, the law changed for youth justice. And the requirement was that judges had to look to every other system before they put a kid in jail. They had to look to the child mm -hmm. welfare, the education, and the health system. And that did a great thing. It cut by half the number of kids in custody. But guess who it didn't cut? It didn't cut. It only cut by about 30% um, Indigenous kids. And the, the least impacted was Indigenous girls and young women because there were so many fewer options for them in the community. So even when we have the options in law, they don't get used. So when I hear restorative justice, unfortunately, I hear add-ons to the system that deal mm -hmm. with the, the young people who are least likely to need that, if I can put it that way. And that doesn't mean they don't need supports. I ended up leaving the area of restorative justice as, you know, in the air, when I was working um, in the community, you know, directly with John Howard and with E. Fry and uh, other groups, I left doing restorative justice because what I saw is it was being used like special circumstance courts and all these other, uh, you know, sentencing circles as add-ons to the system, not for the most difficult challenges where the community is really, you know, there's harm done and people want to come in and really fix it. If we used those approaches for situations where there's been a death, where there has been, you know, real significant harm done, and we, in you know, engaged Indigenous uh, legal traditions, if we engaged elders, if we did some of what the law is supposed to allow, because Section 718 2E of the Criminal Code says this is supposed to happen, in the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, we have provisions that say, particularly for Indigenous prisoners, there are off-ramps out of the system. That legislation, when it was brought in in 1992, it was, it was called a piece of human rights legislation, and one of the objectives was to reduce the number of women and to reduce the number of Indigenous prisoners. So if you intersect that, it should have had a huge impact on women prisoners and in particular Indigenous women and just the opposite. We've seen the exponential increase we've already talked about. And so part of the challenge, I think, is for people to demand that these be truly alternatives and that if, if in fact they don't reduce the numbers of people in prison, then really what we're doing is maybe making ourselves feel better that we're doing a kinder, gentler approach, but we're not fundamentally shifting um, who makes the decisions and who's experiencing the system. So I often talk about, for instance, in uh, in when we were talking about um, the situations of, you know, defund the police and some of the, the work, the calls for decarceration, in you know, they've been going on for a long time, but were really heightened during this pandemic as we saw the massive intersections of racism, of uh, economic inequality and health inequality uh, because of the pandemic. And, you know, one of the things I think we need to do is say, let's, let's set targets by Every year, I mean, the the over-incarceration, according to the mandate letters and according to the TRC uh, calls and the, before that RCAP, I think it was within, by 2025, we were supposed to have the over-incarceration down. Well, the only way you're going mm -hmm. to do that is to say, you have to reduce by whatever whatever number, I, I don't care what number people pick, just start doing it, by 10% every year. Um, we have to re release people and not just add up, you know, keep adding people in and to achieve that reduction, to actually see a reduction in the percentage. And only then, I think, when we start really targeting, uh, will we change it. But 
If we only do that, we still won't change, ultimately, because as we've seen with the Youth Criminal Justice Act, that only goes so far. We have to invest those resources. We have to learn from countries like Portugal, where they decriminalize drugs and then put the money into services in the community. So if we're going to talk about decarcerating and defund police, then we have to talk about actually not just cutting the funds, but putting those monies into where in, into housing strategies, into clean housing, water, education, into, training, yeah, into food, proper infrastructure, into, broadband, absolutely. all things to close the gap I keep talking about. Absolutely. I was going to say, if you don't like restorative justice, what word would you use? If well, you don't like restorative justice. Lots of people talk about transformative justice, but I want it, I want it completely out of the legal system. I think we have to talk about it as fundamental social, economic, and health justice or equality or fairness, however you want to frame it, because we can't really test whether it's working if we don't have the support services in the first place or the places for people to come out to. And a good okay. example is even when you know people know. Um, there's been some attention recently on solitary confinement and the overrepresentation. you know, the worst, the people who are, have, the courts have recognized have been treated the worst are Indigenous women in solitary mm -hmm. confinement. And, and so, you know, the legislation that was brought in was supposed to replace, or get rid of solitary confinement and replace it with structured intervention units. Well, what we know is all it did was rename them. But what people didn't pay attention to in that legislation, in my humble opinion, enough, if at all, was that those two sections I talked about that were aimed at reducing the number of Indigenous people, they were made more restrictive during that in that legislation. And a lot of groups went along with it because they said, oh, we're going to ensure there's funding for Indigenous organizations to get money to do these initiatives. Well, that sounds mm -hmm. good at one level. But what it, you know, what it did was take away Indigenous communities as a group that could actually uh, apply to the minister and get that money. And what it ignored was the government had not been giving it out anyway. I mean, the, the provisions had been there for years. And when we asked about why they weren't allowing more Indigenous um, people who were in prison to be released, either to serve their sentence in the community or to be paroled or, con you know, released into the community on conditional release, the response was nobody's asked. Well, that would be like me you know, mm. walking out here and saying, you know, why has nobody asked for whatever, you know, um, or let's say CERB, if, if we never, if the government put that in place and then never let anyone know about it. I mean, that's essentially what they did with those provisions. And then yeah. they changed them. And then they got the groups that they were funding to support those changes. And then the rest of the First Nations community probably didn't even know those existed. In fact, when I'm um, telling folks about that, especially during this pandemic, as people have been writing and asking for, you know, families and community members have been asking for uh, the support to get their loved ones out of prison so that they're, they hopefully will have a better chance of their health being protected. Most mm. of them had no idea those provisions <clears throat> even existed. So transformative justice, things like men's healing lodges, women's healing lodges, you know, as opposed to jails, uh, sentencing circles and healing circles versus straight going to jail, incarceration, recognition of natural law, creator's law, First Nations law, in addition to common law, civil law, because there's only two systems of law in, in Canada right now currently recognized, common law and civil law. So where do we begin in that system of tra a transformative justice system? Mm -hmm. You know, if we start pushing for um, 
something in the ministerial call letters from the Prime Minister out to Minister Lametti's as, as the Attorney General of Canada, Minister of Justice, and to Minister Bill Blair for policing as essential, which we're going to come to after this one, but elements of a transformative justice system. Where do you think we, we should really focus our energy and efforts? Well, I think, uh, you know, I go back to um, people who I have learned so much from and I still have so much more to learn from. People like Val Napoleon at UVic and, um, and others who are trying to implement a system in recognition that before contact, there weren't jails here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first jails here for Indigenous people were reserves. People were basically herded onto, and I use that term specifically, they were pushed onto, out of their own territories, off their land, onto reserves, and then they were jailed there. They weren't allowed to leave. And the Right up Indian, until 1951 without a permit from the e- old Indian exactly. agent. Exactly. And so, so, you know, I think we need to go be back even before the system of what we call, whether we call it restorative or transformative or anything, and say, you know, what was it then that we can learn now? And quite frankly, I have a lot to learn. I've learned, uh, you know, some, but I have lots to learn, and so do the rest of us. And so I think mm-hmm. we should be looking at what was in place then that we can use and apply now, um, what you know, a good example is when Nunavut, you know, I'm old, so when Nunavut was being um, formed as a territory, as a new territory, I was approached by some folks to say, you know, would you be interested in going up and working on the development of the justice system? And I said, no, like, why would you want me coming? I, you know, you should actually be hiring, if not one or, you know, more, but at least one Inuk person, woman or man, to actually advise you and, you know, work with elders, work with the community to determine what is the best approach to be taking. Um, they had an opportunity, you know, there, there was a new system being set up. And I think there are many opportunities. In fact, too often we see the indigenizing of mm-hmm. our criminal legal system rather than the decolonizing. And I think we really need to decolonize that, the system. That's the key. Decolonize the system because it's not enough now just to bring in a braid of sweetgrass into a courtroom or an eagle feather, you know? That's right. It's got to be totally decolonized. And, and I'm totally with you there. It, it, it upsets me as National Chief to see that happening, that, oh, we're really on a road to restorative justice when we bring in a braid of sweetgrass, you know? And, and it just has to be turned on its head. Well, and so many of the healing lodges have essentially become extensions of the jails and um, and are run by corrections or on contract with corrections. I can't tell you how often uh, individuals working there, uh, and, you know, they're not comfortable for probably fairly obvious reasons raising these concerns publicly because they rely on the system to get the funding. And mm-hmm. they're don't get me wrong, they're doing the best they can and some doing some incredibly good work. But where the limitations are is when they want to do something like go out on the land and take people to work with elders or, or um, traditional healers, you know, they're, they come up against the system and they're told, no, no, you can't do that. That's against the rules. Well, if this is truly a healing lodge, how how is it that it's not the elders and the healers deciding what the rules should be, if I can put it that way, for lack of a better description? And so I do think we have to really look at how much um, 
responsibility is still retained by the system, even when it looks like we're doing progressive things like healing lodges or sentencing circles. Too often it's really an overlay of an indigenizing of, of a pre-existing system rather than a decolonizing of that system and rethinking of it. And, you know, the few the few Indigenous leaders who have actually challenged corrections to do that whether they're elders, whether they are someone who's been hired in to work for corrections and in other capacities, often find their contracts terminated or they, you know, I can think of one who actually got to the level of warden and then was demoted because um, in each of those, the cases that I'm thinking about, and I won't use their names because, mm -hmm. you know, some of them have ongoing uh, legal action and yeah. rightly so in human rights actions against uh, corrections, but, you know, they get, they get, in, even though people will say, oh, that was, you know, nothing happened, negative. In fact, it was really positive. All of the prisoners or parolees who you worked with did really well. That was against our rules. So we, they punished them for it. And so it actually doesn't encourage people to do the things they know need to be done in the best interests of those individuals, which in turn usually means it's the best interests of society. Because if you're actually really engaging in healing and rehabilitative processes, then that's what actually creates public safety, not longer, more punitive sentences. Okay. I think on this front, uh, Senator, we'll call it, let's, we're going to keep working towards decolonizing Canada's current legal system and work towards that transformative system that's going to benefit all. Now, one element there we talked about briefly was policing. And there's been a lot of challenges with policing this past year uh, that we can see, you know, uh, from violence to killing. You know, from Chantal Moore to Rodney Levi to the assault on Chief Alan Adam, um, you know, and it's everything from the Ontario Provincial Police to the SQ to the RCMP. And uh, we've seen that. We've, Canada's witnessed that, you know, and, uh, and to fix that. There's one of the elements that we, we're working on now, because right now there is the First Nations policing program in Canada. You know, 52% picked up by the federal government for the First Nations policing program and then 48% by the provinces and territories. And it's a program. So we've got the commitment uh, by Minister Blair to work on policing as an essential service. And we are working on getting some legislation introduced as soon as we can. Uh, and your thoughts on that piece about policing as an essential service, which is one, one work unto itself, but then the overall necessity to start looking at revamping and overhauling a policy and legislative review of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Service. Uh, everything in that service from body cams to zero uh, tolerance for excessive use of force to better recruitment uh, selection process to better more training for cross-cultural training, de-escalation training, uh, strengthening the civilian oversight, all those things under the RCMP review, but policing as essential service, community-based policing. Thoughts on that? Well, I think um, if you go back to what the origin of the police were, I mean, cop is the term often used, and it stood for citizen on patrol. Like we're talking, you know, I don't need to tell you, we have the bear patrol clan, we have mm -hmm. all kinds of um, unofficial services that have been set up because the police have not protected and provided services to First Nations and other Indigenous peoples in this country that alternative uh, approaches have been set up that have actually assisted people more. I think of a square ride as well as a, you know, it's not a policing, but it's, you know, because Indigenous women in particular were being assaulted in taxis, uh, you know, alternate service again set up in Winnipeg. And so 
when I think of the essential service, it is for people to be providing the protection of each other and intervening when harm is being done, when that protection is not being provided. And it means removing sometimes the folks. I, th I think of the examples that are, um, I'm just trying to remember the community now, but where, you know, for instance, even child welfare, they're going in and removing the parents and designating children's homes as um, the foster home, for lack of a better term, but it's Indigenous-run child welfare. I think if we have in Indigenous uh, initiated, negotiated, funded uh, support services, whether or not you even want to call it policing services, protective services, whatever you want to call it, um, we could go a long way. And yes, of course, it's essential service, but and so mm -hmm. are so many other services, but they could look very different. And in fact, we know that um, my understanding is the last stats I looked at, there hasn't yet to be a person killed by uh, a First Nations police force. There has uh, have yet to be the kinds of abuses. Now, you know, I do know there are, have been some issues raised from time to time about you know, violence against women and whether that's been taken seriously. And I, you know, I would leave that to the women in, um, and the elders to uh, to figure out how to negotiate that on so that women are feeling protected as well in situations where they haven't. I think of this South Island Tribal Council issues of, you know, quite a few years ago now, so I'm sure mm -hmm. they could be remedied. But um, so I think there is tremendous hope in that. And, you know, one of the first... Um, when I was first asked years and years ago to be involved in civilian oversight of policing, I nearly got laughed out of an international conference when people said, you know, what do you think we should do to try and prevent police violence? And I said, well, why don't you promote people on the basis of human and humane interaction and, you know, how many people they actually keep out of trouble instead of how many people they jail or how many people they give traffic tickets to or whatever the... and and you know and re reward the behavior you want to see modeled in your community and mm -hmm. and you know people said oh that's you know really nice and, and naive and you know and, and for sure i was i i like to think i'll always be naive if that's what naive is because i was in my 20s then but i actually thought you know i'd like to see police modeling the behavior we want not modeling the behavior we don't want as we've seen in you know as the the examples you gave and you know over the last couple of months with the Mi'kmaq fishers and you know the mm -hmm. lack of intervention and before that the interventions to to join in the discrimination like all of those issues underscore the need for a very different approach no, no question. So we're going to keep working towards getting that introduced soon, that piece of legislation. Uh, being a program, you can't do any long-range strategic planning. There's not adequate human or financial resources to meet the needs at the community because it's community-based policing models that have to be implemented. So we're going to keep working on that front because that is one element of uh, a transformative uh, system that we're trying to fix here is, is dealing with the police. So we're going to keep working on that. And uh, with the Senate support, your support, we'll hopefully see that introduced uh, for first reading soon, and I've always said that two very important words need to be heard, royal assent, if it's a good piece of legislation. Um, Senator, in spite of all these challenges now in the legal system, and in spite of COVID-19, what gives you hope? I've, I've always been um, a hopeful person, and otherwise I probably wouldn't be doing this. And I do think that this pandemic has 
you know, many of us knew the all of these issues before the pandemic. But one of the things that has really struck me is the revealing of the racism and the economic inequality and the health inequality that people can't ignore anymore. People who said that, you know, it didn't exist before uh, can't ignore it now. Can't ignore how we undervalued people who care for other people, whether it's in care homes, in schools, uh, the, you know, the elderly children, uh, those with disabilities. And so I actually think the way people have risen to the occasion is something that gives me great hope now. And the, you know, my, my worry is that the government will not take the bold action that they can and they should. And it reminds me of the time when um, Medicare and some of these other processes were introduced. I think we we have the resources to ensure that every person in this country is fed, clothed, housed, and educated. And if we actually reallocated the resources to ensure that people were properly taken care of, we would see two main things. One, we'd see a whole lot happier country and people being able to live and fulfill their own, you know, ideas of what they want to do, people being able to uh, contribute to the community in ways they wanted to, and we would see a better standard of living for all of us, and we would see less need for the the type of health care, urgent health care issues that we do, and we would see far fewer people victimized, criminalized, or institutionalized. And that gives me great hope. And I think leaders like you, leaders like the young people that I were, was meeting with last night, and um, the inc incredible energy that's out in the community is what gives me hope and keeps me moving in those directions. And, you know, if ever it looks like I'm not doing this, or if ever it looks like I like this paycheck or this platform too much, I invite everybody who's listening to this to be part of the calling me out to you know tell me to get my act in gear and, and or get out of the position and make room for someone else Senator Kimpei, thank you so much for your strength for your leadership and your passion in uh, serving not only first nation but all all the citizens in, in this country called canada thank you so much for coming on our akamemi podcast oh you're very kind and generous thank you the, the privilege and pleasure and honor is mine And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Alchemist podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.